want a king and we want him now. We want a king and we want him now. We want a king. Hey, Charles, you know what I really need right now? What do you need, Mike? I need some civil discourse. Of the not a safe space type? That would be perfect. Hey, I have the right thing for you, my friend. Well, let's get going. And and you know what? This is really a continuation of last week, isn't it? It is. I think uh, the, that that package was a little too full to completely unpack in one in one session. Hey, you know, I know you had something you wanted to say uh, before we get too far into this regarding uh, the types of children we were discussing. Did you want to go ahead and address that right out front? Well, first of all, welcome everybody to. Absolutely. Uh, Sorry, I was all business, wasn't I? <laughs> You jumped right in head first. I love it. But uh, welcome to Civil Discourse. This is not a safe space. I am one of your hosts, Charles Frederick Sucrese, and this is my co-host, Mike Koniger. And I'm so thrilled to be here. And thank you if you're here with us for the entire run so far. We really appreciate you. And if you're a newcomer, we appreciate you even more. So thank you for sticking with us. Absolutely. And uh, our our not so silent partner for uh, if you hear him uh, peek his head through the microphone is uh, Keith, who's in the sound booth. We want to give a warm welcome to him, too, as well. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) We appreciate you being here. it's in fact i think we should double his salary at least at least double <laughs> there it. we go Absolutely. <laughs> so, so for so, those of you who were here last week for those of you who may not have been here last week we were talking about the idea of i think the title we gave last week's session was no home training is that what it was it was it was no home training and uh, um for those of you who are from the uh the old old school uh, you'll know what that means but uh this was uh, precipitated by uh, sort of probably a universal experience a lot of us have had where uh, children of other parents um, have uh, become something of a, a pain in, in our necks in certain situations where behavior was not expected to be all that particularly good. And by the parent or the guardian or the authority figure who should be looking over them. And the question is, why has that become so prolific and okay? And what's going on with that in the home and the school? And how is that, what kind of adults and employees and, and, and politicians, how does that filter forward in, in society? Um, and we had a good conversation that we want to pick up on, but it occurred to me after we we were done last week that I, I wouldn't think we'd have to say this, but I feel like we probably do. Um, Obviously there are certain children and people who have certain special needs that may manifest in a type of behavior that under normal circumstances might not be considered socially acceptable. It seems like it should be obvious that obviously you give a certain amount of leeway in those situations. They need to be handled a little bit different than the ex, than the standard. Um, and I, I just wanted to make sure that we weren't uh, whitewashing this whole thing as, you know, all kids are bad and all should be taken out and beaten in the street or anything like that. Um, Which we, we never condone beating in the street, but no. um to your point, you know, neurodivergency, we're well aware of it. And uh, I, I did a lot of work in special education. And uh, of course, uh, standard discipline practices do not work with every child. And, and so you have to adapt those practices depending on the child. Uh, we're just advocating for a consistent 
uh, structure for children. It's it's interesting because if you go from an outcomes based approach, I this is the outcome I want a a a young adult who comports themselves with dignity and respect and so forth. If that's the outcome depending on not just the medical or mental condition of the child, but the personality in general, there may be different strategies and methods of, of guidance that are, are a way to get to that outcome. Um, and, and I think we talked about that a little bit last week that, you know, not every child needs the same um, ruler, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, not even the same child or not even different children in the same family need Oh, absolutely not. Um, the same structure. I, I think I brought up my youngest son, who was a self-aware at a very young age and, and didn't have to be told to clean his room or go to bed. Uh, and then my older son, who was, let me be just honest, a hot mess. Uh, he, they're both great adults, so I'm, I'm not picking. But my older son was uh, like I am. He was very, you know, ADHD off on whatever little tangent he would go on. And he'd look up at the clock and it was 1030 and I'm in his face telling him it's time for bed because you're getting up at seven in the morning. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is, it is, uh, we, we recognize those differences. And, and uh, in addition, we also recognize that children who've been through abusive situations don't need any corporal punishment because it's not going to help them. Um, and, and so it's sad that we have to bring this up, but, but we acknowledge that we may not have mentioned that last week, though. I thought we did kind of sort of touch on it a bit. So well, um, it, it's it's important to say I'm not trying to avoid the hate mail on this. It's just that I don't want to give the impression that there isn't a level of thoughtfulness in, in these arguments. I um, I have seen, and I, we probably all have at various points, you know, a, a child or a person, even an adult, who is dealing with something more than you or I are, and and they're being handled as if it was, as if they were perfectly quote normal. And that was, you know, it's, it's a terrible thing to watch somebody who is not equipped in the same way that somebody else may be being expected to, to rise to the same challenges in the exact same way. That's wrong for lack of a more sophisticated word. And I think this week's conversation, you know, we talked about families and, and just general um, expectations and uh, societal shifts in those expectations and, maybe, and causes. And we started to touch on the classroom setting. You know, how is this stuff uh, uh, presenting in the classroom? How are teachers dealing with it? What is the relationship of responsibility between discipline in the classroom relative to the teacher's? Uh, engagement or the parents. Um, and I've been a teacher to, to a certain extent in the classroom and, and in private settings. But uh, I know, Mike, you actually had a full career as a, uh, was it high school level? High school, middle school. Um, I, I did start off like a lot of teachers do substituting and I substituted uh, pre-K special needs classrooms all the way through uh uh, older special needs uh, children who in the Commonwealth of Virginia can go and get services until they're 23. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I've hit the whole spectrum across the board, uh, but I was uh, mostly high school for my tenure education career. Uh, 
where I was a certified and a national board certified teacher. And it's also uh, worth reminding, if, if for those who may not have tuned in last week, that uh, you are also inner city high school mostly. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. All inner city high school. I, I um, am very proud to be an inner city teacher. Uh, I think it's actually, <laughs> I'm going to say something that, that my teaching colleagues will probably blanch when I say, I actually think it's an easier environment to teach in if you have the heart for it. So big qualifier there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, say a little bit more about that. Uh, I I think, and and this is an opinion, uh, it's an educated opinion. I think there are certain um, traits that are still very much admired in the inner city. And one of those is loyalty and loyalty to the community. Mm-hmm. And when it's perceived that you have loyalty to the community, then the community supports you. And so I, I, because I did it for a, quite a time and uh, I will tell you the first year, the students will try to run you off. There is no doubt. I was called every name in the book. I'd smile and wave and move on. And, and but every, every teacher in the inner city goes through just a rough first year. And then when you come back for year two, then the kids know you're for real. And, and it took me a while to figure out what was going on there. And, and what was going on is a lot of people come in and out of inner city youth lives. And by the way, there is a, another segment of our society that is just as much, uh, quote, at risk, unquote. And that is uh, rural uh, young, lower income rural youth are, are almost exactly demographically uh, educationally, demographically the same, even though they're of different races, two different races. So I just, I wanted to bring that up. But well, once- okay. So hang on, before we go on, let's, let's take this particular bull by the horns. Okay. I have always struggled with terms like inner city or urban education, as opposed to rural education. And because to me, there's a, a euphemism being used there. And, and it's because we're afraid to call it by what it really is. But, it's, it's but, but I want to define. So obviously race is the thing that is being evoked when we say inner city. Well, and, race, but not necessarily African-American or black race. Well, this uh, is this is my point. I, right. When I think inner city, um, three things come to mind. Uh, primarily uh, children and families of some ethnicity, usually black, Hispanic, um, those would be the two primary ones that would come to mind. Correct. Correct. And then the other aspect would be economic status. Um, you know, it not necessarily poor, but not necessarily wealthy either. Um, so th- there are obviously some statistics that probably could be quoted there. But to my thinking, when I hear any inner city or urban education, it's usually black and Hispanic and not wealthy is the image that comes to mind, you know, if we're talking generalities. If, if you're talking government definitions, they're looking at how many children are on free lunch and how many children are on reduced lunch or sure. qualify for reduced or free lunch. Sure. And they're going to call those children at risk. Uh, then there are additional factors that are going to be thrown in. Are they coming from a single parent household? Are they coming from a homeless situation? And so there are a lot of other factors get thrown in. Uh, race does not factor in determining whether it's, quote, inner city, low income, or or at risk. 
Um, well, it, and, and to me, that makes sense because there's absolutely, and I don't have statistics in front of me to quote, but again, in my imagination, I would imagine the population of the typical inner city school system in your standard, I don't know what Detroit you know, cities, you, you weren't in, in that area, but um, it, it doesn't really matter. Springfield, Massachusetts would be inner city, even though it's not, you know, Harlem by any means in size. Um, but I would imagine that there's it's probably fairly even between Hispanic and black. Is is that it, not the it case? It depends on the city. In, in this city I'm in, uh, which is Newport News, Virginia, we are a minority majority city, uh, but we are predominantly African-American. Uh, so, so when I taught, uh, I had a sprinkling of Hispanic students. I think I, I used to say I didn't have any. And then my wife reminded me I had one white student in my 10 year career. Uh, and, and so that's predominantly what I taught. Uh, but you can be in, um, a, a lower income neighborhood in New York city and have mostly white students. It, it just depends on the demographics of the local neighborhood. Um, and, and you know, the new and up and coming, um, Challenges are in uh, folks from other parts of the world that are coming into the inner city. Uh, well, and, and, and to a, a fair degree, depending on where your city is relative to, you know, those borders. And of course, the majority, it's usually not the Canadian border we're talking about here. I know, but in Miami, <laughs> in Miami, you could end up with a class that had a, a large Haitian or, or sure. Cuban contingent in the classroom. And, and that's considered inner city if they meet those demographics regarding income and uh um, Absolutely. Those situations. So I appreciate you stopping me for that because I think that is important. And, and so the converse that I mentioned was rural, low-income uh, white students and, and and black students. By the way, again, depending on what region really, of the country we're in, right? We're not, it's not really based on race. It's just based on the income of those rural-based students who are who are growing up in challenging situations. Uh, and so. They very much reflect the same same statistically when I did my research. And now my research is a little bit old. It's it's over five years of age now. Uh, but they're very much on the same trajectory educationally as the so-called inner city students. And so um, I, I think I, I'm not saying, you know, here's the real bottom line, Charles, is you have to differentiate for each and every single individual in your classroom, just like we talked about a few moments ago as a parent having to differentiate for each child in the, in the family. And so um, because kids, regardless of economic backgrounds, are all each individuals, right? <laughs> so, well, and so this is an interesting and, and delicate balance that teachers are asked to, to make. I mean, as a parent, I only have to deal with my children my child in my case, but if you have more than one, and even within that, you know, like you say, with your two boys, you had to deal with them differently. A teacher is expected to deal with the whole community's children. And, right. and, you know, depending on how your school system is structured, that shifts with every single year. You know, you had X group this year and another group next year. And there are only so many hours in each day and only so many days in a school year. So there also have to be, quote, reasonable expectations on what a teacher is expected to achieve, you know, with customizing an approach for what's the standard classroom size now? 20, 25? 18, it depends. 18 to 25? The schools I were in, they, they tried to stay in the low 20s, high teens. Uh, yeah. That was a challenge. Uh, I've heard of schools that are as high as the uh, mid to upper 30s, uh, which is tough. That, that has to be incredibly tough. Um, 
and and it's not tough because those classes are going to have uh, significantly more children that need special attention. It's just tough. You know, 90% of your discipline issues are 10% of your students. So when I have 20 in my classroom, I have two discipline issues. All of a sudden now I have three discipline issues mm-hmm. if I have 30 and then four if I'm closer to 40. And, and depending so, on the grade level and, and the general culture, what starts with one or two can spread like wildfire. Depending you on know, kids <laughs> play off of each other, let's be honest. Regardless of their socioeconomic background, kids Absolutely. play off of each other. And so once we used to call them knuckleheads and it's not really a pejorative. It's just they're the children who, who you need to pay attention to. So, you know, once knucklehead goes, one knucklehead goes, the other knucklehead goes. And pretty soon the one who's not a knucklehead, he wants to join in too because it just looks like great fun. When opportunity knocks. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, because kids are kids. I'm like interested <laughs> in this thing, though, you've said that and, and you brought it up and I was going to bring it up myself. So thank you. Um, you. The majority of your teaching was inner city. And we're going to just right. put that term in quotes here. Um, but I've often thought about this idea that. So I grew up in rural. You like to call it bug tussle where I came from. Um, <laughs> he didn't even have asphalt on his road. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and I walked barefoot uphill both ways to school, which actually is not in a lie. In the snow. And he's not lying. He did walk uphill both ways. <laughs> the road went up and down. Anyhow. Um, so our community, when I was growing up in Western Massachusetts, um, so still New England, uh, but definitely not inner city by any stretch. I would say was just south of 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 middle class. I, I it wasn't impoverished by any means, but I would not say we were an upper upper middle class community in general. Um, you know, a lot of blue collar, a few white collar families, but uh, you know, we all knew who those 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 families were and whose kids those came from. Um, it's funny. It's been years. I'm still immediately. I say that, and I start thinking of a couple names. <laughs> oh, but it is a New England. It was a New England mill town. Yes, yes. Um, and and yet you could drive a little bit further off into the hills and find some towns that come to mind where there was even less, as far as the mean wealth would be uh, considered. And I'm. You could also say that those t- those communities, the further rural you got, they also got whiter. I would argue, um, the, the, you know, we we still were on the cusp where there might be a couple of families, not many, but a couple of families of color. But I'm I'm interested in what would be considered the the familial expectation of support. You've often said in your inner city experiences, you knew you had the, the families had your back as a teacher. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I think I've said that in private conversations and I think I may have even said that last week. And and that's where it comes to the loyalty factor that I brought up at the very beginning of this conversation. Uh, Once, and I used to tell young teachers this, I, I coach a lot of young, young in their career. It doesn't necessarily mean they were, were 20 something. Uh, but I would say to folks, you need to go to the things you're invited to. If the Jones, and I'm just picking the name Jones, if the Jones family invites you to their family reunion, you go, mm. you go, you show up for an hour, uh, you bring your partner and, and you enjoy whatever, whatever you're given and you eat it. And uh, if, if you're invited to a baccalaureate service at the local uh, 
Baptist church and you're going to be the only white guy sitting in that class and that church, guess what? You go, you go. Um, if, um, you know, and, and you start to build those relationships with the community. If, if the local pastors ask all the teachers to come and visit with them because they want to pray over you, you go because pastors are an incredible resource, uh, particularly in the city. Uh, pastors tend to be the foundation of, of a lot of communities in the city. So you go to all those things. You go to the openings of parks. You go to the, we we have a um, you put and use day celebration downtown and you go to that and you're seen there and people come up and say hello and give you a hug in the middle of the street. And when mom brings you in fried fish on Friday, you eat that fried fish and you send home that thank you note that we talked about way back in another episode. <laughs> so, um, so, and, so and by the way, I put on 20 pounds teaching. I put on 20 pounds teaching. So, <laughs> so absolutely nothing of what you just described about the interaction between teacher and community would be what my memory of teacher and community relations when I was growing up in my middle, middle class, uh, Western New England country town. And I don't know what it would have been way up in the further corners of the Berkshire hillsides. Uh, but it's what I do know is that when I was young, if the, if you were sent to the principal or you were, or, or a call went home, then you could expect something when you, when you got there, <laughs> it was, it was not going to be treated lightly. By the time I was leaving high school, so what's that, 10 years later, give or take, um, if it was a normal thing to see a parent coming in and chewing out the principal or a teacher because their child had been, you know, somehow uh, called out for chewing gum or whatever the behavioral thing, how dare you pick this? So there was a huge shift there. There was, there, there has been a shift. Um, the thing is, and, and we, we don't want to acknowledge it. Um, but, but, uh, the inner city family still is pretty conservative in the way they raise their children. And, mm -hmm. and so I had a lot of parents who would say, I wish you could just spank them and, and deal with them. I, I will tell you this, and I'm very proud of this. And I, you've heard me say it before, but for the benefit of our listeners, I wrote seven discipline referrals in 10 years. Mm. seven. And, and those seven were all for fighting. And you don't have a choice as a teacher. When, when students fight, you have to write a discipline referral. Well, what is a uh, discipline referral? Uh, it's saying I can't handle This is my own prejudice coming in, by the way. So I apologize ahead of time. It's saying I can't handle this discipline issue. So I need the administration to handle it. And that's my very biased opinion on what a discipline referral is. It's saying I need help, I think would be the more balanced way to say it. Now, here's what's interesting. I hear you say that. And I know that's that's what it feels like you're being said to me. It says this child needs a level of discipline that I am not allowed to put upon him. Ah, but you see, I disagree in that. Well, you're right. I'm not saying you're wrong. I disagree for me. Let me say that for me, because I held my own detention. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't ask the administrators to hold detention. I held my own detention. And so if young Charles was acting up in my class, I called up Charles's mom and I said, I'm going to keep Charles till six o'clock tonight. Can you come pick him up or can I drop him off? Ooh, and, you wouldn't be allowed to do that now. Oh, I did it. And and I let the administration know uh, they knew I was holding my own detention. 
And uh, I would have to have another adult. And here's a little inside baseball. Uh, Charles knows my wife's also a teacher and, and she was a teacher in the same school system. So she could usually ride with me, but I would have another licensed teacher ride home with me so they could be a witness that nothing untoward happened. Okay. And we dropped the kiddos off and, and it wasn't a huge deal. And parents appreciated it because it kept Jonathan, Johnny, little Johnny in school mm-hmm. uh, instead of getting him suspended. Because if he went to the principal, he's probably going to get suspended. And by the way, when I had students suspended, I would show up during my planning period to teach them the day's lesson because I didn't want to have them fall behind. <laughs> so more than one student thought he was getting five or 10 days. And usually it is a he, sorry. Uh, thought he was getting five or 10 days off because he got in a fight. And Mr. K is knocking on his door saying, it's time for your uh, social studies lessons. Let's sit down at the question table here and we're going to get to work. And, and so I even did stuff like that, which, you know, every parent loves the fact that their teacher cares enough to show up at their house and teach their, their son or daughter. So, so um, it's interesting because you reminded me, I remember when um, my high school started instituting the concept of zero tolerance. And I love this. I'm not a fan, by the way. <laughs> I love this idea of zero tolerance, which is a, a great way of taking away the concept of judgment. In, in my humble opinion, it is Great. removing all uh, opportunity for thought and just saying anything that can fall under this heading will receive this response. And of course, fighting was one of those things. You talk about fighting, you were, you were required to put together a, uh, a disciplinary recommend or whatever you called it. Uh, referral. referral. Referral, yeah. And I remember, because I was actually in high school, I think, latter half of high school, so at least a junior probably. And I remember the principal when, when this thing came out that this, that, you know, the notices go home and you get, you know, whatever, uh, that the school is instituting in a zero tolerance for bullying and fighting, I think was the two. Um, so I could snort Coke off my, my desk if I wanted to, but uh, as long as I didn't bully anybody about it, then, uh, it would be fine. (laughs) Well, what's sad about it? And, and I don't think a lot of us who were very, very professional, uh, what we didn't like about this was the bullier and the bully, uh, got the same punishment. Well, this is exactly my point. And it's just, it's inappropriate. And. A lot of times, uh, even the administrators don't have the latitude, depending on the school district, uh, the administrators don't have the latitude to use, honestly, what should be called uncommon sense, right? <laughs> because if it were common, we'd all be doing it. But but it doesn't make any sense. We could watch the film because on the school buses, there are usually cameras running. You could watch the film and the minute student B, who was getting picked on, punched back, he or she got the same punishment. And, you, and didn't, I just no, thought, you didn't even have to punch back. The The idea that was being put forward is that if Billy came over and socked me in the face and all I did was fall to the ground unconscious, I got suspended too because I participated. It depends on the district. That That's, that's a district call. And, and I, I'm going to watch myself. I know this is not a safe space, but I'm, I'm going to tread lightly here. Uh, it's, it's, it's a deal where well-meaning people have put in a structure that removes all judgment from teachers and administrators. And in many cases is tying their hands and making them do things that are not in the best interest of children. Well, that's exactly my point. (laughs) You're taking away the idea of judgment and thought. 
And I remember as a junior in high school, walking straight into the principal's office and saying to Mr. Peters, um, I want you to know that if somebody comes up to me and it's also to be said, I was one of sometimes the only occasionally there were one or two others, but I was uh, usually the only student of color um, in my school. And yes, that presented a couple of interesting challenges. And I remember saying very directly, uh, if anybody comes in and puts me in a situation to defend myself, not only will I be defending myself, but if you try and suspend me, I will, I will personally take the school system to court. (laughs) You, you, you displayed a level of maturity that most students don't though. And they don't know. They don't know. I figure if you're going to, if you're going to bring the ax down on me anyway, I may as well beat the snot out of this kid who's coming at me with a baseball bat. (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it's silly. I don't want fighting in school. I don't like no, bullies. In no, of course not. And and I don't always. But I don't like victimhood either. I don't like the I idea agree. of training people to be victims. Don't and, and you dare stand up cameras, for yourself. We have cameras everywhere except the restrooms. We have cameras everywhere except the restrooms and schools. And so you can see what happened. You can see it usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, now kids aren't dumb. They find the blind spots. But <laughs> but you you know what I'm saying. So we can generally see how things unfolded. Uh, and funny thing, and just a quick sidebar, oftentimes you can find the video of the fight on YouTube if you look. <laughs> well, yes, right. since cell phones are now ubiquitous in the right, in the, right, the right. Whole. But anyway, no, I, I think it's 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 um, it was probably well-meaning, maybe not, but it was probably well-meaning. But it's gone way too far over board. And, and what you're talking about started happening in probably the the mid to later '70s and got progressively uh, more rigid, uh, less judgment allowed as time progressed through uh, the decades. And, and, you know, in 19, and I'm not saying, not saying everything was the good old days, but in 1960s, the world came to the the United States to see what the number one school system looked like. I think today the number one school system in the world is I think Finland. Mm -hmm. So something has changed dramatically. Um, in, in that time span of what's that 60, 60 years, 70 years. Uh, and there's still school districts in, in, in the United States that are, if they were put up against Finland, they would wipe the floor with Finland. There's no doubt about it. And, and you and I've talked about some of the, we test all children. We don't uh, eliminate special education or, um, yeah, it's, been it's a mean-based system. measurement. And right, right. We, we test all our children. Some of those school systems do not. And by the way, I'm not a I'm not a, a hard lefter on on education. So if you're shaking your head at me, thinking I'm making excuses, I'm not. I'm I'm simply saying that um, not only should teachers be held accountable, but students and their parents should be held accountable, along with administrators and school boards that put in silly and inane laws and regulations. Well, what you just well, now that I've offended everybody. <laughs> Wait a minute, keep, keep, keep this timing in here. <laughs> Chomping at the bit because these are things I think about all the time in education, and, and one the, the punitive stuff. Of course, if, if you do something wrong, you should be punished. But the punishment for students to expel people a lot of times, because when I was in high school, if you got in a fight, you were expelled. That was the automatic thing. A lot of times, people that are getting in fights are also the troubled students that need the extra help. 
Amen. So mm-hmm. when you're punishing a student by taking them away from education, you're just hurting them more. Yes. And that's that school to prison pipeline system yes. right there. You know, hey, this school district is in trouble. Their test grades did bad. Let's take money away from them because they're doing bad. That's the, the way we go about punishing students in schools is the opposite of what we should be doing if we want to actually help a society. Well, and Keith, what you use there is, is, is a very interesting word, and, and we've used it ourselves, but let's call it out. You're using the word punishment, and it is the difference between punishing somebody for a wrongness, you know, whatever that may be, a crime, a, an act of, of, of whatever, and holding them responsible. And holding somebody responsible can take all kinds of different forms. And, you know, a punishment that falls into that category really nicely of, of uh, uh, no tolerance. If this happens, that happens. There's not going to be any conversation about it whatsoever. The problem is exactly what you're talking about. You often you're going to expel the one kid who probably needs to have the more uh, attention given. And and the innocent who was actually just walking down the hallway. I mean, this happened to me once or twice. The only difference is I uh, I am to this day grateful that my mother and father sat me down, said you will never be a victim. You don't go around starting fights. But if somebody comes after you, you uh, you stand up for yourself, because if you don't, they will never stop coming after you. And I don't care what tree hugging, blah, blah, blah person disagrees with that. I absolutely feel that way. And have taught my kid to feel that way as well. You you stand up for what's right for yourself and others. So so we've made it very clear that I'm the older one of the two of us. And so I grew up in a whole different era. And we actually had a boxing ring and gloves in the school. And if you wanted to fight, you'd go find the administration. You'd tell them that Charles and I have something we need to settle in the ring. And, and they would try to talk you through it and see if it could be settled outside the ring. And if we decided, one of us decided it couldn't, we went into the ring and we dealt with this issue. Um, first off, that eliminates the bullying stuff because the bully doesn't want to get in the ring. <laughs> so, well, that's an interesting thing because what happens when it's between two very ill-matched people? Size well, wise. that's where the administration has to be involved. <laughs> You're not um, going in the ring with him. <laughs> right, right. But, but, you know, it's, it's just a change in some, some things here. And the honest truth is, and Keith touched on this, is I didn't want to lose those kids. And what I never went in the teacher's lounge, by the way. I, I didn't, didn't, didn't. Enjoy, I sat out in, in the lunchroom with the kids uh, and, and I had my, t- there were a couple of the male teachers. We would sit out there, we'd talk sports and, uh, the students could always come up and just talk to us and say hello and and uh, ask us questions or whatever. And and so I always liked being out in the in the lab, which is probably why I can't hear anymore, by the way. <laughs> uh, but but I like being out there in the lunchroom with the kids and and uh, I liked being in there because I think a lot of bad stuff is said in teachers' lounges because teachers go in and complain. And I don't want to know that Sally misbehaves in your classroom because Sally is an angel in my classroom. And maybe it's because my relationship with with her family is is better. Maybe it's because of my discipline structure. But I don't want to start thinking ill of Sally because she misses misbehaves for Charles uh, because she doesn't misbehave in my room. And I, my wife, who's still in the same school I taught in, uh, told me one day. She said, "You know that was that she wasn't a very good girl. She she was really misbehaved for a lot of t- a lot of teachers." And I said, "She never misbehaved for me." So I, I didn't know. And so anyway, I, I think, um, 
and by the way, I wasn't the perfect teacher. I, there were there were a couple of kids I just couldn't reach, and, and other teachers could, uh, but I didn't give up. Then your and, career was a failure, Mike. Let's just uh, be honest about it. <laughs> you know what you say about don't go to the teachers' lounge. Actually, when I was getting ready for student teaching, they said in the whole seminar beforehand, "Don't go hang out in the teachers' lounge. Don't do that because that's where all the bad things happen." <laughs> And, and it's even at the college level. They're the like, worst bullies of all, right? I don't want to know about the students before they come in my class. I want to come in with a fresh mind, yeah. unbiased. Yeah. I don't want your tainted opinion to tell me about them before they get to my class because that skews how I approach that student once I see them. Amen. And, and every every kid, every kiddo deserves a fresh start in your classroom. And for me, because I the school I was in, it was a K through 12 school. So even though I didn't teach the elementary students, I, I would see them. And so for me, I wanted every year to be a fresh start. So, and, and there were children who, when I had them the first time, were, were not the best behaved. And by the time I got them back, they had matured and, and, and had figured out where they were in life. And they were outstanding uh, students in my classroom. And so, you know, you can't even bring in your own preconceived notions about how a, a young person is going to behave in your classroom. Uh, they deserve a second chance and a third and a fourth and a fifth sometimes. So... Uh, as long as as they respect the rules, right? But this is the thing, it, and, and and getting back to the the point of this entire conversation, for those who are wondering what the hell we're talking about. Well, we, we've gone down a little bit of a, a hole, but that's okay. It's important stuff. But to it, say. it's related, and and you know this idea that discipline needs to be upheld, both you know imposed when when necessary, self imposed when necessary. And and understanding a standard of of engagement, whether that's in behavior or performance, whatever it is, and certain responsibility that comes with either, you know, achieving that that standard or uh, uh, failing to achieve it. And it doesn't you know, we're not talking about a block thing where you, you, you got to be on the test. We're going to take you out back and hit you with the paddle with the holes in it. It's but it's a question of in a lot of systems, it seems that these standards of both behavior and performance have been and, and the, the ability of the educators and the support of the parents uh, of those educators and, and of the students and support comes in many forms has been washed away to such a degree that it's a free for all in too many communities, you know, between the, the politically speaking, behaviorally, um, academically, and so forth. And then those kids graduate because we don't hold anybody back anymore. And and maybe that's a good or bad thing. I don't say that in judgment. I don't I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that. But now you have people going out into the workspace and they have no standard of expectation that's been put upon them. And, you know, for years, and I think I said this an episode or two ago, you know, the, the question has been, what's going to happen when millennials start having to go into the workplace and they're no longer considered special? Well, now we're there. And uh, knowing a few people who are supervisors in professional situations that are dealing with the new workforce who thinks they're special some amazing stories come back about people who it was no i didn't get the the project done but you know so why, why am i still getting a, a a needs improvement on my uh re, my uh 
assessment evaluation. evaluation thank you you know what's this and now we're going to hr because yeah my boss gave me a needs improvement and they're not being fair and this all you know and it, and now companies are finding themselves with their hands tied in litigation or the or the risk thereof they can't fire somebody because it might be you know all this other stuff and mike you now work in in uh, the, the corporate side of things i do and and actually um I, you know, millennial, every generation brings their strengths and, and their weaknesses. And uh, I'm kind of in between the boomers and the, and the Gen Xers. Billy Idol's older than I am. And by the way, his band was called Gen X for those who didn't know, which is why I bring him up. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm on the, the leading edge of X and uh, I, I, X has their problems, by the way, uh, no doubt, <laughs> as do boomers and millennials. They all do. And, and, and Zers, they're, they're all very different, but they all have their strengths. And millennials do bring a certain, uh, if setting aside some of those other things that you brought up, they bring uh, uh, some really serious out-of-the-box thinking. And as long as you don't tell them when to work, they'll put in way more than 40 <laughs> hours a week if they're allowed the freedom to work from 2 in the morning till 12 at noon or whatever. I'm, I'm playing with some stereotypes here, but my point is, is uh, they a lot of my millennials thrive when given the freedom to do what they need to do to get the job done and not are not given structure. Uh, which may be a strength uh, as a result of some of the, the changes that you and I aren't particularly crazy about. Uh, so, and, and, you know, Keith, I hate to pick on you because you're supposed to be the producer, but you see a lot more millennials than I do. Uh, do you have a similar impression? They're not millennials anymore. We're not as ennials. Your ears now. Yeah. Your ears. <laughs> they, they are a different breed. All well, we actually, I was <laughs> reflecting. Well, it's weird because this semester has been kind of a weird semester. Cause if you think about it, this is the first semester or year even where we've been fully back in person in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Last year, that school year, we were running a flex model where we couldn't have full capacity in rooms. So some people would be online, some people would be in the classroom. So you had to modify a lot of lesson plans and discussions. Uh, so this was the first year of that. And I was just uh, reflecting with another person who teaches the same class I do about what a strange year it was for this group of students, especially the the younger ones who are maybe just coming out of high school, who really spent the last two years of high school learning remotely and not having the same social interactions. So just the fact that now they're in person again, I think that in, in a reflection upon the semester, because it was such a weird semester for me personally, that they just didn't know how to be together. Mm. and then work right. together because like a lot of projects especially the later half of the semester they're I, I let them work together as groups and you know they, they're still doing individual work but they can work collaboratively to get those things done and i feel like they just forgot how that is because they haven't really done that in person in two years and and at that age with these zennials you know when you're 18 19 20 years old and, and you haven't done that it's a weird skill to learn all of a sudden and it's funny because it is a skill. And, you know, uh, those of us who developed long before COVID came along, the I, it's not like this was something that, you know, we put away and, and don't know how to function with, you know, this the group uh, engagement. So it's weird to think that. Uh, so it's been two years. You know, what's get back to it. It's no big deal. But you're right. These the these young yeah. people missed a, a very formative section of their up and, and two years for them is 10 percent of their life exactly you know <laughs> two years for us was a, a fraction of a percent for them it's two it's 10 percent of their lifetime and it's a formative so it is significant and, and, and yeah. you know the later teenage years develop uh, social developmentally is very important 
because that's where you're starting to become an actual adult and figure out who you really are in the world. And as we all know, that are older, you really don't know until you're like in your thirties. <laughs> and even then you're and still figuring then. it out. Uh, you, well, you, know, I you, hate you, you hit 25, you're like, oh, I know everything now. Then you hit 30, you're like, no, I really know. No, Jesus. every year you keep going and going and going. You were saying, I, I, I hate to throw brain development in, but, but to your point, you know, late adolescence, particularly for males is so critical mm-hmm. in, the, in the development of the frontal cortex of the brain. And I'm totally nerding out, but this, I'm going to bring, watch me bring this around because that is where the impulse control comes from. Mm. And so the fact they weren't in the classroom to learn impulse control um, is a negative. And so I, I, I'm sitting here thinking as, as we're talking, it starts in the high school. So I saw those, those same children or young adults that, that Keith sees a four or five years later and if they're not in the classroom to receive the structure that I gave them, they come to him without that structure in their mm-hmm. in their brain. And that leads to what he's talking about. Mm. Yeah. Usually I spend my with my younger students, I try to unteach the standardized testing processes in their heads because that doesn't <laughs> make sense for us in, in college because mm-hmm. I'm doing project based stuff and I don't care about tests. And that's why usually I'm trying to unlearn. Now it's like I'm trying to just get them to, you know, I always joke, joke the first day of the semester because everyone doesn't know each other. They don't talk really when they get to class. And I go, guys, it's college. You can talk to each other before class starts. It's OK. <laughs> and, and usually by, you know, halfway through, they're talking, whatever. And it's still like quiet when you come into class, except for like the three people that know each other. And I'm like, is it because everybody's on their phone, though? No, it, <laughs> only this year, like in the previous years, by the time you get to a certain point, people know each other. They start gabbing before class yeah, starts. Yeah. Uh, I, it's always that first, second class. No one knows anybody. They're all nervous. They're all early, which is weird. <laughs> they won't. They don't want to be late for that first class. They got to find their room. So let's let's talk about this thing. A little shift in direction. Um, I I can't remember where it was, but somewhere recently, I was reading. Might have been in my hometown that some school system was looking at formally making it so that you cannot have your phone in the school or something to this effect. I saw that. Um, And I don't remember now where it was. And I don't remember exactly how they were going to impose this. Either you had to lock it away at the start of the school day or you couldn't bring it at all. There was something to that effect. And now my gut reaction is right on because I just don't see how sitting in class texting is part of the learning experience in any productive way. Um, and talk about throwing a, a ball of, of something nasty at a teacher that on top of all the other things that these kids need supervision over at this age, now we got to deal with their cell phones and so forth. But it's also a ubiquitous part of our culture now. So, what do you think about that? How do we deal with this? It's insane to justify in my mind that they should be allowed to, you know, fully, con- it's, <laughs> you know, why not just give them a, a beer at the start of the day and you, if one for each class as they go through, because you're talking about the same level of distraction as far as I'm concerned. Well, you, you, well I, back when I was do, again, doing the teaching route and I had to do my observations, I actually did an observation in Greenwich at Staples High School over the summer. And I talked to the professor, uh, professor, teacher, high school, not professors, um, about that. Cause you know, Greenwich, they had, this is like 10 years ago. They already had cell phones. They're in Greenwich. He's like, you make them use it for class. Okay. If you don't fight them on like, Oh, put it away, incorporate it in. 
if you have the tool to find the information, now go find that information. You have no excuse now. <laughs> it's you got to turn it around. And, and at my level, in the, you know, up here in college, as far as I'm concerned, you're paying to be in the room. If you don't want to pay attention, that's your problem. Yeah. There's the door. Go ahead. Walk out it. You're wasting your money. Yeah. You, you know, you're spending four hundred fifty dollars every time you show up to this room. If you don't want to use it, that's what's you. When you go down to the lower levels, you know, that's actually not it, it's opposite. You need to reinforce that. But yeah, like you said, it's ambiguous. How do you take that away? And there's also cases where you have people that need to be in touch with their parents. They need to be able to uh, you know, emergencies happen. It's a lot faster for uh, a parent nowadays to text their kid about an emergency or something that's happening at home than to call the office relay that information to the, mm-hmm. the the classroom teacher, paying what classroom they're in at the time, if it's high school. Um, so the, I, I see both sides of the argument, but I just don't think that realistically you can find a way to, it, it's basically like we're, we're trying to fight a fight that you can't win. You're mm. not going to find an efficient way where you can take all everyone's cell phones away and devices away for the day and make everybody happy. And so, you're never going to get I've been out. I've been out of the classroom for almost a decade, uh, out of the high school classroom. And uh, uh, it wasn't just Greenwich. We had uh, lots of kids with smartphones uh, in the classroom. And I did the user for research, user for research. I did that a lot. The other thing I did was when we had testing or quizzes, I had one of those, you know, the shoe pocket things that you can buy at Target or, or wherever. I would make them put their phones in the shoe pockets because I don't want them having the phone while we're testing. Uh, so, so, you know, it was, a, a I, I think I, I'm a big person in turning it around and making it a tool for class. Uh, I don't, I don't think very often it it was abused. I, I, I think I caught a couple students cheating with their phone and, and just took their phone and made their parent come pick it up by the way. So, and by the way, you heard Wyatt had some, some serious things to say about all of this. <laughs> so, anyway. Wyatt's um, our occasional guest host. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, how dare the nanny want to move, move Jonathan while we're talking. No, so, no, no. Anyway, no, I, I think, I think again, it, it's a matter of creativity and relationships between uh, teachers, uh, students and their families and the administration. And um and also, what is the purpose of high school and what is the purpose of middle school? And, and that's way deeper than we have the time to go in with what little bit is left. But but these are all conversations we as a society probably need to have. And, and I'm not an apologist for educators. Uh, there are lots of terrible, terrible teachers out there who are gaming the system. Um, and, and I'm not an apologist for, for parents and or, or learners. We, you know, any population has some bad, bad eggs. Uh, but I think we need to step back as a society and say, should every kid go to college? I don't think so. But should they? Uh, should high schools be preparing children for life? Where are the financial education courses? By the way, I taught one of those in high school. So anyway, you know, where where are all the the uh, the courses you need on how to figure out what it is you want to do in the future? And so. Well, and, they've been stripped away in, in so many communities. Oh, yeah. And where's the music education? Because the there are those kids that the only thing they're good at is, is music. What was that? And, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and sports. And, and, you know, it's lots of so things. Sports are going uh, strong. <laughs> so, you know, my point is, is, is I think we do need to step back. Yes, ladies back. and gentlemen, you just heard my bias come out in full, full character right there. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's. 
but you know, I, I think all kidding aside, we need to step back and look at it. And, and a lot of it, there's the money's already there. Many times we've misallocated the funds where we're paying lots of folks to sit in central offices downtown to administer the schools and not enough of them are out in the, in the, in the school helping educate kids. And, and I think if we shifted some resources, uh, we could find a lot of efficiencies and really pull some of these schools up. By the way, the school I taught in was arguably the finest inner city school in the United States in that time frame. I, I would have put it up against any of the academies in New York, the Harlem Renaissance Academy, any of those schools. The I can't remember the private um, system that does the uh, charter schools. I, I would have put that school up against any school in the country as far as test scores. And by the way, Keith, I spent two weeks preparing the kids for the test. The rest of the time I taught what I wanted to teach. Amen. And, <laughs> so I gained the too system. much time spending on tests. Well, the, I, I gained it. I was not going to spend a whole year preparing kids to take a test when I could teach them everything they need to know to pass the test in two weeks. So, And don't just, forget the reason why our education system is the way it is. Yeah, let me try that again. Zip, zip, yeah, we'll edit the, it in the, post. Don't worry the, about why, it. The way the education system is the way that it is, is it was developed as a process to train people how to work in factories. Mm. We stole it from the Prussians. We K, stole it from the Prussians. K through 12 uh, is about education for factory work. That's and, it. And being the uh, 86% German, according to Ancestry.com, of all of the city states in Germany, that would be the one I wouldn't model my school system after. So. Well, it's interesting because you look at just literal the physical structure of the classroom traditionally when they're young, uh, kindergarten through whatever. The, they're, the, the desks are grouped together or they're at tables where they're together. And then at a certain point, they go into single desks and rows. Not my classroom. We stayed in groups. But if you think groups. about, you know, through the 1940s, 50s, 60s, okay. you, you got to junior or high school, whatever it was. And all of a sudden you were now in a perfect little row. Uh, by yourself, and and you're absolutely right. It was that idea of you know factorial indoctrination. Um, but Mike, you said something that um, talking about having you know obviously the math and the sciences and the art and the culture and the music and the sports and all these other different things. And there used to be something called a classical education. This goes back to the Greeks, and I don't know. Maybe they were doing something right because the attitude was that everybody had some sense of at least at an amateur level which was not a dirty word uh both art and athleticism and intellect uh was all given equal balance of importance in in the upbringing of 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 a student so you know th that's why we see the greek figure well it's because you know the physical uh, attention was 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 important to keep the body as strong as the mind and that art and culture was absolutely as important as this you know math and sciences such as they studied them and there are a few schools out there that still call themselves classical schools but i don't know that you have to you shouldn't have to go to a special school to have access to balance and the the idea of balance in in upbringing, and that's both in the academic sense and also in the behavioral sense, and and the the idea of how you interact with with each other as students and with the teachers and so forth. Um, I, no, I agree, I agree, and I again, this goes back to me. We need to have a societal conversation mm -hmm. regarding what it is we want from schools, and, and probably 
at, at least a local level. Uh, you know, school board meetings, I, I don't know if either of you have been to school board meetings. Uh, I'm pretty sure at least one of you has been to a one or two. I used to be the audio engineer for ours. So, you know, you know, 20, <laughs> when I was in high school. 20 people show up. And, yeah. and so those 20 people have a voice. And, and unless there's a budget or a teacher pay raise coming or something, uh, or, or some new curriculum has been introduced and people are up in arms about it. But generally, as a rule, it's a very small group of people that show up to those meetings and are heard. And, and I would encourage all our listeners to, to attend every one once in a while. I don't have any kids. Why would I go to that? You have a vested interest in what's yeah, going you're on. You're part of society. Absolutely. You're paying your taxes. You're, mostly your property taxes are going to support those schools. And, and as an educator, and, and and like I said, I am not a bleeding heart on education at all. I know I probably sounded like it today, but I, I'm a high structure, high discipline in, uh, teacher and always have been. Uh, I want you in those meetings hearing what's going on because I need your eyes and ears to support me in the classroom. And um and, and and so I just would like to encourage everyone to just pick two or three a year to show up to, please, please. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, a lot of them are on Zoom, so you can just watch them from your home. Absolutely. Ours and, is online. Speak. speak. Get up and speak. Say what's on your mind. If you don't want, you know, uh, if you want your kids to have more recess. T- oh, you cut out. It's a recess now. There you are. We lost you for a second. We did. I'm sorry. (laughs) Something about more recess time. I I think you got cut (laughs) off on recess. Obviously, that's not a good idea. (laughs) Well, you know, we, 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 I, I, you talked about this corporate model that we're using, our factory model we're using for kids. We group them by manufacturer dates and we treat boys like dysfunctional girls. And and I, I, I have some real heartburn. And unfortunately, we can't go down this path. Do you know why? Well, we're out of time, but I think uh, the statement we treat boys like dysfunctional girls is a great cliffhanger. Uh, <laughs> we'll get some mail on that one, I think. Oh, well, and if someone would like to talk to me about it, I'll be happy to show you the statistics that prove my point. So anyway. Well, we'll have to pick up that uh, next time, I think, probably. Um, what are we going to talk about next time? Um I, you know, I, th- I, I don't want to go back to Will Smith by any means, but, uh, did you, uh, did you see this thing that happened with, uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, at the Hollywood You know Bowl? how tapped I'm, I am to popular culture, meaning absolutely not haven't paid any attention to it. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I think that there's some conversation to be had on, um, <laughs> uh, a certain, civil behavior let's call it that <laughs> With please, please don't tell me i'm not gonna like dave Chappelle anymore oh no i, I would say dave Chappelle uh, came out very much like chris rock on this one um good i, I because you're just ruining all my favorite comedians here so no, no, no. I, I i would love to talk about that i guess i'm gonna have to figure I'll, out I'll what give, i'll give the teaser uh uh Dave Chappelle, they were doing a benefit, I think, program at the Hollywood Bowl. He and a whole bunch of other artists and comedians and so forth. Chris Rock happened to be there. And uh, Dave was introducing the the evening um, at the top of the set. And somebody jumped up on stage from the front row, just somebody from the audience, and uh, attacked him with a knife. 
Oh, uh, my goodness. Yes. And fortunately, he was not hurt. They fell to the ground. The guy tripped or whatever. And then, of course, he was tackled with by about 70 security guards or something like this. But so, you know, Dave was fine. Uh, the gentleman that he is, he went on and, and you know, after that calmed down, he went on to do his his whole thing. And it turned out to be a pleasant, e- uh, a productive evening. But. In the wake of what happened at the Oscars, now you have somebody jumping up on stage uh, and and attacking a comedian. And, you know, hecklers have always been a thing. But now you have to wonder, is it going to stop with heckling or is it, you know. So, yeah, I think maybe there's something we should uh, we should unpack about this new world we're living in um, when it comes to. Uh, acceptable behavior and so forth of the audience and the performer. Well, you know, on that happy note, I'd like to thank you for uh, once again, spending some time with me on a, on a beautiful day and, and discussing obviously something that I'm very passionate about with education. And I, I'm going to go ahead today and thank Keith for his very thoughtful uh, responses to some of the questions I asked him and, and again for all the production work he does behind the scenes and without him there is no show so and I know you have some folks you'd like to thank Charles. well of course I'm I've got wonderful thanks to head to uh, Mr. Keith in the in the other room you know this studio has windows lots of windows none of them look outside so the only sunshine <laughs> I see is Keith's smiling Aww. face to the window here and it, that is enough for me ladies and gentlemen enough for me but uh uh, Sacred Heart University, the School of Communications and the Arts, Dr. Jim Castingay, Keith Zdroilvi, getting thumbs up every time now, I'm good. <laughs> My co-host, Dr. Michael Koniger. I'm not Dr. Mike Koniger. 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 It's an old principal, that's the joke. An old principal used to call me that. The Lazarus Trio, uh, Carl <laughs> Groves and uh, Mike Koniger, uh, the, the one and the only on vocals and uh, writer of some of our great intro outro and uh and music for our our show here and tune in next week where we will have some more civil discourse it's been great thank you so much and have a great rest of your week Surrender